There you go, Dan, I'm on. All right, it would be helpful if you would put two bookmarks in your Bible, if you'd put one in Exodus 12, where we looked at this morning, and then put the other in Luke chapter 22. Okay, I want to make some reference to Exodus 12 and to Luke 22. Obviously, we're doing things a little bit differently. Just a couple of comments first. What we aren't doing, we aren't actually celebrating Passover here. It's the wrong time of year for it. It's part of the Old Testament. and We're not bound to those things. And we aren't going to do everything exactly right. So, if any of you here are secretly Jewish, or uh, if this makes its way online to a Jewish individual, somebody with a Jewish background, you don't have to pull out your copy of the Cedar Haggadah and say, wait a minute, you guys aren't doing this right. Don't fact check it. We know. Okay. Um, What we are doing, this is a demonstration for... uh, to be a teaching tool. And I I pray that it's going to be a helpful demonstration. So if you are part of a Sovereign Grace Landmark Baptist Church, other than this one, and this makes its way to you online, we are, I'm not here teaching people to be under the law. That's not what we're doing. We're just learning. I don't want to have this made into something that it's not, which is part of why the vast majority of y'all are, Uh, just going to be observing, like literally watching this Passover demonstration and not directly participating. Um, No folks should be in danger of leaving here this morning saying, oh, we celebrated Passover at church. We didn't, okay? One other disclaimer. It is very difficult to say we are going to do a demonstration of a typical Passover meal without trying to put it into some context of what time frame in history we're talking about. The Passover began in Exodus. We looked at Exodus 12 this morning. And throughout the centuries that followed, traditional elements have been added to what happened in Exodus. So, for example, when we read about the Passover in Exodus this morning in Exodus 12, there was no reference to any kind of wine, any, any cups to be used uh, at all. And there's also, um, th- those things have been added over the years uh, to Passover as the, the, the celebration has continued annually. So the first Passover in Egypt would have looked different than, say, the way Passover would have been celebrated in Solomon's day centuries later. And, it w- and that would have looked different than the, Passover celebration at the beginning of the New Testament that Jesus observed, and that would be different than the first few centuries of Jewish Christians who continued to celebrate Passover, and all of those are different than what modern Passover tradition includes. By the way, modern Passover tradition includes a process that takes about four to six hours. Y'all want to sign up for that this morning? I didn't think so. We're not going to do everything exactly right. Okay. So which one of those are we aiming at? Well, I want to be sure to demonstrate the basic elements of the Passover story from Exodus. 
and also concentrate especially on the Passover meal as Jesus and his disciples would have observed it. It's not our goal to try to recreate uh, the entire Passover meal and all its details. If you want to know all the details, you can go online, Google Passover um, order, Okay, the word, I used the word cedar Haggadah earlier. Cedar means order. Haggadah is a description. It's a detail of events. If you want to know the process, you can go look that up. You don't have to look it up and say, I think you left something out. My response is going to be, well, we left a lot out. Okay, but there are basics to Passover and I want you to see them because what Jesus observed in that final Passover in the Gospels with his disciples, he did some things that were new, some things that were different, some things that would have been surprising to his disciples. And it's helpful for us to know that. Jesus used the Passover, which originally pointed at the rescue of the Hebrews from the bondage of Egypt, to point to his own sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection that has set us free from the bondage of sin. In other words, Jesus took what this meal was and he used that to institute the Lord's Supper, which is what we'll be observing at the end of services. So of all the goals this morning, our main goal is gonna see that. What was usually done? What did Jesus do differently? What's that mean for us? This kind of demonstration is certainly not something we're going to make a habit of, so, but my prayer is it'll be helpful. Some of us are audio learners, right? We learn by hearing. Some of us are visual learners. We learn by seeing. Some of us are tactile learners. We learn by touching or hands-on lessons. Jesus didn't hesitate to do that kind of thing. A couple of folks have been voluntold that they're going to have the opportunity to be tactile learners this morning, so I'm not up there by myself. I wanted a male-type person and a female-type person, and so I voluntold Jay and Kanija that they were going to help me because I wanted some people who were brave enough to sit up here in front of everybody, um, could sit on the floor comfortably for quite a while, and had a Best way to describe it is an adventurous culinary palate because <laughs> some of the things with Passover, they're just not what we're used to. And so if you are interested in trying any of these things yourself, if you are curious and you want to know what they are, Tony's been kind enough that after service, you can go down to the kitchen. He, he has it to give you samples of it. And you will even get to try the lamb warm, which is something we won't because the more I talk, the colder it's getting right? So, um, Jay, Kanija, if you would come up here and help me. Jay, I'm going to have you on this side, and Kanija, I'm going to have you on that side, and you can move that over there. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Everybody else, if you need to move so that you can see, I understand we're down lower. If you need to move around so you can see, go ahead and do that. Uh, we need to get positioned the position is reclining. So, get down in the floor, okay? And, and once you feel comfortable cross-legged, you gotta stop doing that. You have a pillow. You can either use your elbow or your hand. Traditionally, you would recline to the left and they would eat 
with their right hands. Now, what would ordinarily happen is, I can't really do it because this is here, but you would be facing, you would be head towards the table and feet away from the table. I know that makes you very happy, right? Yes. Okay. Um, many times in the Bible, you'll read in the Gospels that they sat down, or especially if it says they sat down to meet or they sat down for food. Um, that's describing this practice of reclining in order to eat food. The Greek word there is anapipto, and it's the same word that John uses when he describes leaning back on the chest of Jesus at that final Passover in the upper room. Um, I really thought about putting five people up here, but I just don't think we're going to have room for it. But I could borrow a body for a second. Andrew, would you come up here? We're going we're gonna to just use you for a minute and give you a visual display. Get over here between me and Jay. Okay, so if I'm leaning this way, Wow, it's really picking me up. <laughs> okay, Jay, lean your head back. Where's it going? Okay, so, so you see, when, when John said that he, on a pipto, he leaned back and put his head on the chest of Jesus. Don't, you stay here for a second. But this, this has made me rethink the way I've constructed this illustration. Because you're eating with your right hand, right? Andrew, if you were going to pick something up and hand it to someone, who could you hand it to? Like, you can do this, right? You can get it to me. Could you get it to the person past me? No. So, when, when John asked Jesus, who is it who's going to betray you? Remember what Jesus said? I'm going to take a piece of bread and I'm going to dip it and I'm going to hand it to him. So if Jay is John and Andrew is Jesus, who am I? Yeah, right? Judas was, Judas and John were on either side of Jesus. Okay, we're done with you now. Okay, I've had about enough of reclining to eat. You can sit however you're comfortable. <clears throat> so that's how they would, they would sit. And you know in the upper room, Jesus had easy access to their feet because he went and washed their feet. Sorry, Jay. He went and washed their feet. So head towards the table, feet back away from the table as much as you can, but reclining. So it, it would have been quite close. I mean, if you think about Jay and then Andrew and then me, how comfortable would you be eating that way? You know, that's a little bit more togetherness than we're used to, but... In scripture, you find this, this is symbolic. When, when, when scripture talks about having fellowship or having table fellowship, it's talking about a sense of closeness, a sense of unity, right? A sense of togetherness that, that we don't normally associate with, oh, we're having a meal together, but you're sitting on the other side of the table from me. That's not <laughs> what they mean. There's a, a sense of closeness, a sense of togetherness. It's, it's pretty cozy, certainly closer quarters than we're used to. And that's important to remember as well. So there's going to be some audience participation um, in, in some different ways this morning. I forgot to tell you guys to bring your paper with you, but oh, you got it. Yes, you guys are awesome. Um, we're going to start by reading a portion of scripture called the Shema. 
Turn to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, or you've got it on your handout. The word Shema means to listen or to hear. So the word Shema is the very first word of this text. And this is a well-known portion of scripture that was memorized and frequently used in Jewish tradition. Let's, let's read it together slowly. We're not gonna do it real well. It'll show we haven't practiced, okay? But let's read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Okay, the Passover meal essentially moves along in, you would say there are three stages or four stages. There's four cups of wine, and so those cups of wine kind of mark Um, every stage of the Passover. Jesus and his disciples would have used wine, probably wine combined with water, but certainly it wouldn't have been grape juice. So this is the first place I had to struggle on how we were going to do this since this is a teaching demonstration. This is grape juice and water mixed together, and that's what we're going to use. Rest assured when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's going to be wine as it always is. So that's separate from this, we'll be using wine. Okay, uh, give me your cups. You don't have to drink all of this, but in the process, drink at least enough so that four different times I'll be able to to pour some more in your cup, okay? Okay. We're going to see how comfortable Jay is drinking reclined. You feel confident? Um, Sure. Okay. There you go. So the first cup is sort of the official beginning of the Passover meal. Um, They would have had a call to gather. They, They usually would have recited the Shema like we did. But the meal itself begins with this first cup, and it's, It's blessed with a traditional blessing for wine, which could be sung in Hebrew, but I'll just say it in English. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now, I want you to see something that happens at this first Passover, where Jesus begins right away to rearrange the disciples thinking about this process that's happening. Look at Luke 22. As Luke 22 opens, Jesus is a wanted man, right? In verse two of Luke 22, the religious leaders are plotting to kill him. In verse three, Judas Iscariot has already plotted to betray him. Verses seven through 13 Jesus gives instructions on how the disciples are to find this upper room where they would observe the final Passover. And it reads like something out of a spy novel. Luke 22, 
starting at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say unto the good men of the house, The master has said unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, have you ever wondered why it is that Jesus did this the way that he did it? He knows He knows that Judas and the Jewish leaders are plotting his demise. If he he says openly, like, okay, so tonight, fellas, we're going to observe the Passover. We're going to do it in the upper room of that house that I've rented out. It's right there at the corner of, uh, you know, Fifth Street and King Solomon Way. You know exactly where it is. If, If he had done it that way, that room would have been the place where he ended up getting arrested right? Judas is already, up in verse 6, Judas was already looking for plotting where he could betray Jesus in the absence of the multitude, right? And so Jesus wisely uses some like cloak and dagger kind of vibe, right? Instead of saying openly where they were going to have Passover that night, he tells them a place to go, a thing to look for, almost like a a password to use, (laughs) like, and he's done it that way, I think so it conceals from Judas exactly where they're going to be that night because Jesus knows he's to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the first cup is the start to the Passover meal. Now look at what Luke tells us in Luke 22, verse 14 through 18. It says, when the time or when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him and he said unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, I I want you to have this clear in your minds. Jesus took the cup. And he gave thanks, right, just like we just did a moment ago to begin the meal. But that is not the institution of the Lord's Supper yet. I know it reads very similarly, but the part where he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he says, this is, you know, this is my blood, that's going to happen in Luke 22 down in verse 20, right? We're not there yet. That's later in the Passover meal. And I'll I'll point it out to you when, when we get there. But right here at the beginning, in the first cup, Jesus takes the cup and he blesses it and he, he, he does something very surprising to the apostles. He says, with, with desire I have desired, or with fervent desire, I've been wanting to take this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows what's about to happen. He speaks twice about that in verse 16 and verse 
18 about this ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom of God and the table fellowship that they're going to have with them in the kingdom of God. Table fellowship, right? That symbol of unity and closeness, togetherness, love. So right away, starting at the first cup, which begins Passover, Jesus at this Passover is, is breaking Passover tradition. Right away, his disciples would have realized just how odd this was. What's Passover all about? Passover is all about looking back, right? Looking back at the way God redeemed the people out of Egypt. It's about the past. It's about what God has done in redeeming the people. Jesus, from the very first moment of this Passover, says, I've longed for this. And the reason I've longed for this is because I want you to know there's this thing that's about what I'm doing to redeem the people of God, right? Jesus sees this forward focus of Passover that his disciples would have been surprised by. All those people who are redeemed by Jesus's blood out of the bondage of sin, they're gonna have table fellowship with them forever. There's that expectation of the future. That's part of why I wanted to have this kind of demonstration. It's only through sort of understanding, well, how does Passover work that we can then read what Jesus did and see that Jesus did something that was different with this final Passover. And we'll see how the Lord's Supper fits into this. So right away, the first cup is different. The next step in Passover is called the karpas. And it is, it is a kind of appetizer for the meal, although it's not a horribly appetizing appetizer for the meal. Um, it involved using a vegetable. Now they could have used something like cucumber or, or radish or very traditionally what they would do is a piece of romaine lettuce. And they would dip it in salt water. They'd roll it up. So take your lettuce, roll it up a little bit. You don't have to eat the whole thing, but just, just roll it up a little bit. Okay, so this is your salt water. Go ahead and Mix it up, make sure it's good and salty salt water. And have some carpas. Delightful, right? Well, it's going for more. I said you're going for more. Just wait, it gets even better. <laughs> it's about this time in a traditional Passover that the sort of teaching element of Passover comes in. Usually, someone, usually the youngest or very young children, would ask what are called the four questions. And each one of those questions has to do with, well, what makes this night different? And understand, I, I know what time it is. We're going to use the term night or tonight because that's when Passover was usually done. That's how these questions are typically asked. These questions are designed to fulfill the command of Scripture. If you have Exodus 12, you can look in Exodus 12, verse 24 through 27. It says, You shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass, when you come into the land which the Lord will give you, according as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service, right? What, what is this all about? 
that you shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. Okay, so there is that expectation that there's a teaching from one generation to the next element to Passover. So these four questions get asked. I really need a drink. <clears throat> these four questions get asked. Um, I have also voluntold uh, Lily, Maya, and Ryan that they were going to help us out with that. Lily, you're going first. What's the first question? What you got? What makes this night different from all other nights? Why do we only eat better herbs tonight? Great question, Lily. <sighs> the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs that we'll be eating are called marar. And marar is the Hebrew word for bitter. The first time we see that word bitter in the story of Exodus is actually back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, where it describes that Pharaoh made the Hebrews' lives bitter. He made it marar uh, with hard bondage. And so we eat the bitter herbs, the marar, because it reminds us the bitterness of slavery in Egypt and um, how God has delivered us from great bondage. Second question. Why is this night different from all the other nights? We, we, why do we recline so comfortably at the table tonight? Okay. Well, some of us are reclining comfortably. So we, we recline. The reason we recline at the table is because we can. In ancient times, only the, the richest and most comfortable were really in a position where they could eat reclining. And so God has provided for us generously, and he's made us to be comfortable in his promises, and so we eat reclining. Maya? What makes this night different from all other nights? We usually eat leavened or unleavened bread. So why do we only eat unleavened bread tonight? We can usually eat kamats or matzah, leavened bread or unleavened bread. But leavened bread takes time to rise. Have you ever seen or maybe you've made yeast rolls and, you know, the dough gets formed and then it gets set out and, and it takes hours as the dough starts to rise? That is a time-consuming process. Well, at, at the final plague of Egypt, God said to make what he called the bread of haste, right, without leaven because he was going to deliver the Hebrews very soon. And so we eat matzah, unleavened bread, uh, because we expect to leave very soon. Okay, who, who, who had the short straw and asked the fourth question? What makes this night different from all other nights? Why do we dip lettuce in salt water like this? Ah, why do we dip the vegetables in salt water? The, the symbolism of that really depends on who you ask. Okay, some say that this is actually symbolic of the story of Joseph. You remember how Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt? And in order to pass that off to their father, they took his coat of many colors, right? And they dipped it into blood and took it to their father. Well, some say that that's the symbolism of the karpas where we dip in salt water. And this makes some sense because that's how the Hebrews ended up in 
in Egypt to begin with is through Joseph's story. Um, some say that it is symbolic of the sweat and toil of slavery. Um, some will argue that it's about the tears that the people uh, shed as they cried out to God. I think that symbolism is in Passover, but that comes a, a little bit later. Um, seriously, over the centuries, tradition has changed. So things have been added to Passover and symbolism has been attached to most of those things. So for example, there's there's, there's one rabbi who, who explained to his people, you really should use romaine lettuce because it's soft at one end and it's hard on the other end. And that's like the Hebrews in Egypt. It was easy when they went in, but it was hard when they came out. You know, they'll, they'll just attach some kind of symbolism to just about anything. Good job, the three of you. Thank you very much. Um, the retelling of the story of Exodus, the story of Passover, um, in a traditional Passover service would take probably a couple hours, at least an hour or two. Um, We're going to reduce it to some very simple statements, just for time's sake. God promised Abraham that his people would serve in a foreign land for 400 years, but ultimately God would redeem them. He would bring them out into the land of promise. Uh, The family of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, ended up in Egypt through that story of Joseph. And they fled there um, to get away from a famine. And and God used Egypt to to protect them and sort of develop them into a growing family. And then after many generations in Egypt, a Pharaoh arose who, when he assumed control, he was afraid of the Hebrews, sort of that nation within a nation. And he was afraid that they would join Egypt's enemies or that they would try to escape because there were so many. You know, by the time the Exodus happens, there were 600 fighting men, essentially, making the total nation probably 2 million or more, right? There's a reason why Pharaoh was afraid. And so Pharaoh... Um, put them to almost impossible tasks and like, you know, make bricks out of mortar, but you don't get the straw that you need in order to make the bricks. And when that didn't work, he, he tried different plans on how he would murder the, the infant Hebrew boys. And when the Hebrews cried out to God for uh, deliverer, Moses was sent by God in order to deliver the Hebrews uh, out of Egypt. And God poured out plagues that, that showed his superiority over all of the, the false idols, the false gods of Egypt, right? He, he did plagues of blood and, and flies and frogs and lice and disease and boils and um, hail and locusts and darkness. And then finally, the final plague was that he was going to pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family. In order to protect the Hebrews, God commanded the Passover, right? Take the lamb, kill the lamb, put its blood on the doorposts of your house. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And God used that final plague um, and the protection of the Passover lamb to deliver his people. And um, he's commanded them to observe this every year 
as a memorial. Okay, so things are going to speed up here just a, a little bit. We haven't even gotten to the main part of the meal yet. Um, but it's time for the second cup. So let me pour a little bit more for you. This thing was heavy by itself. All right, one more for me. Okay, so we pour the second cup and then we ask the traditional blessing on wine again. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Amen. And that begins sort of the, the meal part of the Passover meal. Let me ask, does anybody remember the name of the man who um, taught the Apostle Paul? Like when he was Saul, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Right. Um, well, Gamaliel is still a respected rabbi today. And Gamaliel said there were essentially three there were three essential elements of a traditional Passover, and that would be the matzah, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and we have that, and, and the roasted lamb. Although every, every time they have Passover, they point out that Gamaliel said this, but Gamaliel actually um, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 8, describes those three things. I'm going to maybe take this out of my pocket and see if it stops cutting out. Um, there are some other things that are traditionally included as well. Um, you won't experience a Passover meal nowadays with at least, without at least one roasted egg, and we're, we're not doing that. And there's also a traditional dip called harasith, which is a, a mixture of like ground fruit and nuts and, and honey. It's very thick. It's supposed to resemble the mortar of brick making in Egypt, and, and it does that. We've, we've got some of that. Um, I didn't want to skip that part because that's actually the one thing about Passover I think tastes really good. Um, even though it doesn't look great, Joy was nice enough to make the harasset. And um, so we'll have that. The bread is basically the same bread as I would make for the Lord's Supper. They made this this morning. And traditionally, they would have three pieces, and I'm not going to go into the whole way that they would ordinarily have done this, but I did have three pieces. and um, It is unleavened bread. And so in a Passover meal, the bread is broken. Of course, it's blessed first. So the traditional blessing on bread is, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Amen. And then um, it would be broken. I'm just going to give you a big piece. You don't have to eat it all. <laughs> don't panic. But let's take a piece and eat it. So this continues to sort of the main part of the meal. Next up is the maror, the bitter herbs. Y'all, you got maror here in your uh, cup. It's the white stuff. Um, it is pure horseradish uh, ground into a paste with a little bit of vinegar added to it. We're going to take a piece of lettuce. We're going to dip it in there um, as a word of caution. 
you might want to not use too much um, because remember earlier when I said there is a part of Passover where the tears are remembered? This is it. It's, this is supposed to make you cry. Okay? I'll see if it does. Oh! <clears throat> Remember, if you need a drink, that's salt water. <laughs> you want to go over here? Mm. All right. There's another well known rabbi who suggested a different way of doing this. I know, now I tell you, right? <clears throat> um, rabbi Hillel suggested using a piece of bread and adding a bit of the maror and also some harasset. Now, if you want to just use the harasset, I won't tell on you if you don't tell on me. <laughs> but they, he, would, he would take it and, and use both, right, and put it together. And they would, this is actually in traditional Passover called the Hillel Sandwich. All right. See if you like it. <clears throat> Harrison's pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think in John's Gospel, when John asks Jesus who's going to betray him, and Jesus says, "I'm going to dip bread and put it in the cup and hand it to him." It was probably that Jesus used the harasset to dip the bread and, and hand it over to Judas. Now, we still need to try the lamb. But before you do that, I want to try to make you really uncomfortable about it. And I actually think that's part of God's design with the way he described Passover in Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, if you remember as we read it this morning, God told them to go out and inspect, find a lamb that is in the first year, so a cute little one, and make sure that it has no spots, no blemishes, right? No flaws of any kind. Bring it into your house. And when you brought it into your house, it stayed in your house for five days, if I brought a lamb into the house, do you think you'd go five days without you or your sisters naming it? Probably not, right? I mean, how, how often do you think in the course of that five days as they brought this lamb into their house that they actually grew a little bit attached to it over the course of those five days? I know my girls would probably name the, the silly thing. And then after those five days, you have to take the lamb out and you have to slaughter it. You have to slit its throat with a knife. The blood has to be caught in a basin and you take this little bushy plant um, called hyssop and you dip it in there like it's a paintbrush and you put that blood all over the doorposts of the house um, for your safety and the safety of the people in your house. You have to pass through that blood and when God sees the blood, he's gonna pass over you. The lamb was to be roasted whole and it was to be consumed in its entirety. If you didn't have enough people in your house 
to eat the whole lamb, then you needed to seek out a neighbor who was in the same situation. All of you stayed in one house and you ate the whole lamb. It was to be consumed in its entirety. In the event that something was left over, it had to be completely burned up the next morning. Okay, so some cold lamb. No leftovers. None of its bones were to be broken. Um, that's the command of God, by the way, back in Exodus 12. None of this lamb's bones were to be broken. And that was actually fulfilled. John says it was fulfilled at the crucifixion when they came to ensure that those being crucified were dead. They broke the legs of the two thieves, but they got to Jesus and he was already dead. So they thrust the spear through his side and didn't break his legs. And that actually fulfills that picture of him being the Passover lamb. And also, if you remember, that's how John saw Jesus in, in Revelation 5, as a lamb that was slain, um, but still standing, right? He saw a lamb as it was slain, standing there. Um, I'm going to talk with my mouthful for a second. Sorry for being rude. One interesting side note, many modern Passover celebrations do not include lamb at all now. Their tradition was that the lamb could only be slain at the temple in Jerusalem. And since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, many, not all, but many, don't use lamb now in the Passover at all. The story of their redemption from bondage that story that God said pointed forward as a symbol, as a sign, as a token. For them, it is lambless, it is bloodless, it has lost much of its meaning. Now, remember the questions for earlier. Why, why do we use unleavened bread? Why do we use unleavened bread? Anybody, why do we use unleavened bread? Because it's the bread of haste. We're in a hurry, right? And um, Exodus 12, verse 39, described this as what they actually took with them out of Egypt. It says they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now, you can imagine how that process would work, Right? You could not get out the door fast enough when you've been in slavery your whole life. I mean, the people had been in bondage. They'd been stuck in Egypt going back in their family for centuries. And so after, after this final plague, you know, dad's out there. He's got the station wagon packed and mom's in the kitchen going, no, we got to wait for the bread to rise. That's not going to fly, right? So they're, they're in a hurry. They're... they're the point of the unleavened bread is all about haste, about speed. That's the story of the bread that gets passed and repeated every year, except when you look at Luke 22, Jesus did not tell that story. He doesn't say, there's nothing recorded that he said anything about it. 
the Passover, which is a remembrance of the redemption from slavery, Luke 22, verse 19, says he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. You do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't seem to me that Jesus did this at the very first instance of breaking bread. In Mark's gospel, you might know, Mark's gospel, it says, as they did eat. Matthew describes it as, as they were eating. And so I tend to think that this second course, right, between the second cup and the third cup, is there's that meal portion of Passover that during that, toward the end of the time where they would be done eating, Jesus then took the bread and and broke it and far outside of Passover tradition, breaks it, blesses it again, which is not the tradition, and then also declared it to be representative of his own broken body. This isn't the bread of haste. This isn't about being in a hurry out of Egypt. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And so he's, he's doing these things that are so different. Now, just like the original Passover was a memorial of what Jesus, uh, or of what God did, right? There came a command that you're going to have to observe this as a memorial. Jesus maintains that. He says, you're going to observe this new thing that I'm doing. You're going to observe that is a memorial. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so he takes this memorial and he changes it to to that one that we're going to observe in a couple of minutes. You know, this isn't this is why we don't celebrate Passover anymore. Um, the Hebrews saw it as looking back on what God had done for his people, but Jesus now commands, there's this memorial of what he continues to do for his people. Or as Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And so it was at the end of that meal portion of Passover that Jesus again took up the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it, saying, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And it was then that he took the cup, right? At at the Lord's Supper, we do the bread, and then we do the cup. And so after that bread, he takes the cup. And that cup at the Passover they were celebrating would have been the third of the four Passover cups, where Jesus takes the cup and he blesses it and gives them to drink. Now, since this is a Passover demonstration, here's the third cup. Um, you first, huh? That's okay. I appreciate the enthusiasm. This is the third cup. Um, oops, sorry. Thanks for catching that. There you go. I will set this safely over here, perhaps. And it gets poured and shared and blessed. The traditional blessing, you might have it in your heads already. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now, this third cup in Passover... um, 
many Jews have started to include in their Passover celebration nowadays uh, the promise of Elijah. All right, Malachi promised the prophet Elijah would come and declare the way for Messiah. And so at this third cup, they'll actually open the door in case Elijah wants to show up and come in. They'll often even pour him a cup and set it at a place by itself and call it Elijah's cup. But of course, we know John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah preparing the way for the Messiah. And Jesus said, John, if you can accept it, is Elijah who should come? And so this third cup was accompanied by the singing of psalms, and we don't have to wonder which psalms uh, were sung. They're very standard. It was a section of psalms called the halal. If that word halal sounds foreign to you, it's the Hebrew word for praise, and you can hear it at the beginning of the word hallelujah, right? Praise Yah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord, right? Hallelujah. And so the songs that they sang would have been that halal section from Psalm 113 to 118, um, since we aren't likely to sing Hebrew very well. Uh, Let's just go ahead and read Psalm 113 as a call and response. And I'm going to have Andrew do the call part and you read aloud after his part. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same. The Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. The glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself, to behold the things that are in heaven, and in the earth. He riseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. Okay, so that brings us to the fourth cup. Either just before or just after those psalms of praise, the participants drank the final of the four cups of Passover. You need some more? Okay. All right. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now, that would be the conclusion. Drinking that cup would be the conclusion of Passover. But if you remember, a few minutes ago, as we were talking about what Jesus did as he instituted the Lord's Supper, Between that second and third cup, when they were having the meal portion, in the middle of that meal, as they were eating, he's taking up bread again and blessing it again and breaking it and telling them, take it, need it, this is my body. And then he takes the cup, which would have been a third cup of Passover, 
right? And he uses that to say, this is my blood, which is, uh, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Do this in remembrance of me. It's shed for the remission of sins. And so he took Passover and what was very traditional, very sort of a very routine event for the disciples. And, and he's, he said he, he's been wanting to do this Passover, right? With desire, I have desired, or with fervent desire, I've wanted to take this Passover. And he makes it something fresh and something new. And he makes it clear that it's portions of it are pointing to him. Now, as much as the Passover was given to the Hebrews as an identifier that they were redeemed of God, they were a distinct people that were taken out of the world, Jesus takes this final Passover with his disciples, with believers, with the earliest Christians, and he, he does something new and better and, and different. He gives it to his church, reminding them that they are the community of faith that has been redeemed, that has been taken out of the world and, and that for their sin, his body was broken and for their sin, his, his blood was shed. Which, by the way, is one of the many reasons why when we observe the Lord's Supper, we do it as members of a church. It's not the goal of excluding anyone from a blessing, but it's to observe it as a united community of faith the way that Jesus intended. So Jesus instituted a, a different kind of supper at that final Passover. And, and one thing, the last thing I want you to see is that he left the old one, right? He, he starts this new supper and he left the old one unfinished. We just took the fourth and, and final cup of Passover. Do you think Jesus did that? Not, not last time. He didn't. You know, the last Passover is still going forward. Remember, during that second phase, as they were eating, he took the bread and broke it, or blessed it and broke it and gave. And then he took the cup, which would have been the third cup of Passover, and he blessed it and said, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he gave it to them. And then he, he moved right into that third cup and that, that third section of Passover. Here's how Matthew's gospel describes it. Matthew 26, verses 27 through 30. He took the cup. So that would be the third cup. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it or all of you drink of it. For this is the blood, my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Right? That's a definitive statement. I'm not taking this cup again. He used that third cup to establish the Lord's Supper. The fourth cup just sat there. They didn't, they didn't do that. That Passover is, is unfinished. So Jesus is shown through the design of that long-established plan of God in Passover that there was the message of something new. Hadn't God said back in 
Exodus 12, that that blood, it's a token, it's a symbol, it's a picture, it's, it's pointing to something greater. And now Jesus said, well, this wine is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. This bread is my broken body, which is broken for you. So now you've got a, a better celebration. You can remember the redemption of the past and you can look forward to that day where I will sit with you in my father's kingdom at my father's table, right? Table fellowship, close, united, personal, intimate. And now he says, now let's, let's sing those praises of Psalms and leave the rest of it there. And that's what they do. They sing a hymn and they go out into the Mount of Olives, the fourth cup, waiting that unity will have with him in the Father's kingdom. This final Passover that Jesus did, it's an uncompleted, it's an incomplete Passover. And so it's ongoing. Back in Egypt, that long night of the final plague ultimately ended. Passover was done. The people could come out of their houses, but they were to remember there was the ongoing recollection of it because the day was coming where they should see that picture in something new, in someone new, right? And so now Christ is our Passover. He is the blood that protects us. It's, it's by being in him, right? He's the hiding place. And this Passover, this final one, after he says that, is going on forever because there's no morning coming where you are walking out of the house and leaving the blood of Jesus behind. It is a daily living in him. You're never, never to walk outside and leave him.